Please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. For the last month or so, we've been looking through the, the book of Philippians, one of the letters in the New Testament that was written by the Apostle Paul to uh, one of the churches in, uh, in the, f- the first century. <clears throat> Chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, it says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. I do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This passage has a very strong theme of unity in it. Uh, Our senior pastor, Brad, preached about that last week. It was a great sermon. If you weren't here last week, I I really encourage you to go on the web and listen to that one. That's one that you should should catch up on if you were away last week. But this week, we'll uh, focus on a few different things in this passage. And I'd really like to start by by pointing out to you there's a very stark contrast in verses 2 through 4. Look very carefully at verses 2 through 4 and look at the several things that are contrasted there. In verse 2, you hear him describing the same mind, the same love, and it's sharply contrasted in verse 3 with selfish ambition. You see, these two things are very much opposites. Many pe- You have on the one hand many people and yet they're sharing the same mind and the same love. And yet, on the other hand, you have many people, and they're of demi- divided minds and divided loves. And then likewise, another contrast, you see in, the, in verses 2 through 4, the contrast of humility and acting on the interests of others versus conceit and acting only on your own interests. You see, these things are mutually exclusive. At any given time, you're either doing the one or the other. You can't do both. There's no such thing as humble conceit, right? There's no such thing as generous selfishness. I mean, you would never say about someone, do you know what I like about him? He's so generously selfish. If you said that about somebody, your friend would look at you and say, that doesn't make any sense. Do you know why? Because it doesn't. That's why. So that's the first thing that you're supposed to learn from this passage. The first thing that we should learn from this passage is be aware of your own mind. You see, because he wrote this to the Philippian church, the Apostle Paul must have known that this tension existed in their community. That he must have known that they struggled in some way with being humble and with being selfless. Otherwise, he, you know, if he didn't know that about them, if he, he wouldn't have written this in the letter. But that's not really much of a surprise that the Philippian church struggled with humility and selflessness. Because that tension, the tension between humility and conceit, is a timeless thing. 
Wherever you find sinful human beings, you'll find a mighty struggle between humility and conceit. Wherever you find sinful human beings, you'll find a mighty struggle between acting in the interests of others and acting in the interest of just ourselves. And it turns out that we, in our culture, are filled with sinful human beings too. We have lots of human beings. And so we can see this struggle playing out all around us. And it shows itself in a lot of different ways. For example, I was talking to a friend, in a, a friend who's a pastor in another city recently. And he told me something that I thought was very insightful. He said, people in his city are incredibly individualistic. They don't want anyone or anything obligating them, telling them what to do, burdening with feeling like they must do one thing or another. They want to be fully autonomous individuals. And they will tell you that very directly, especially if you try to tell them something to do. They'll say, hey, you know, I'm my own person. I get to decide that. And yet, he said, here's the, here's the tension being pulled between the interests of others, the interests of ourselves. And yet, he said, the more individualistic they become, the more disconnected they feel from other people. And it makes sense, right? With every step that they take toward individualism, the less they are able to live in community with other people. And they know it. They sense it. One writer explained exactly what's happening in this moment. An author I read recently, he explained exactly what's happening in this moment. You're being pulled between the interests of yourself and the interests of others. He wrote, Many people consider individualism the finest achievement of modern civilization. We live in a world where people have a right to choose for themselves their own pattern of life, to decide in conscience what convictions to espouse, to determine the shape of their own lives, and a whole host of ways that their ancestors could have never imagined. Their ancestors could have never controlled. For instance, they get to choose their jobs, where to live, who to marry, and those kinds of things. And these rights are generally defended by our legal systems. In principle, he he writes, we are no longer sacrificed to the supposedly sacred orders that transcend us. Very few people want to go back on this achievement. Indeed, many think that it is still incomplete, that economic arrangements or the patterns of family life or traditional notions of hierarchy still too much restrict our freedom to be ourselves. And so the pursuit of individualism goes on. And that's kind of the, the water we're swimming in. And yet, there's, and yet, this is where the tension enters. When we decide that there's nothing outside of ourselves that can claim to explain life or give value to us. When we, can, when, we claim, when we decide that that idea is obsolete or invalid, there's only one place left where we can find meaning. And that's inside ourselves. And this all feels very liberating in the moment. It's very good to be free, but in practice it's actually very draining. It's very draining to be an individual We are left to construct a life for ourselves entirely on our own. And the problem with that is that life is an awfully complicated business. And it's much harder than it sounds to construct a life for yourself from scratch. And so back to my pastor friend. He told me, pastor in another city, he said, people in his city, they try to use various things to build meaningful community in their lives. Some try activities like cycling or CrossFit, sports teams, Live music or theater, food or wine tasting. They go to events and they find other people who are interested in the same things and they, f- they try to build community through, through, ev- through events, through actions. Other people try to find community in ideas. 
like green living, economic justice, or a particular education or political philosophy. Still others try to find community in a sense of place through being involved in a neighborhood association, through going to the same restaurant or bar or place time after time, through uh, various kinds of community involvement. They try to find meaning in place. Here's perhaps the most dangerous one. Family. Some people entrust the meaning of their lives to their spouse, to their kids, or to their extended family. And the problem with all of these things, everything I just mentioned, is that even the good things... And so many of them are good things. So None of them is big enough to fulfill our need for community. None of, us is big, none of them is big enough to, to, to truly connect us to other people. And he described for me in his city how these things always break down. You get the two guys who were best friends in the cycling club. He just, this is a true story. Two best friends who ran the cycling club. Uh, and then uh, the, the two of them couldn't, dis, couldn't agree on how the cycling club should be run. And so they separated and formed two cycling clubs. And this happens, and they say Christians are the ones that are divided. You know, denominations and sub-fracturing. And, but I tell you, that's not unique to Christians. Any organization you get into, there's the tendency to disagree and divide and separate because we can't find true meaningful connection and community through activities or ideas or places or even people. So they're all good things, and yet... Uh, none of them is big enough. So we add more and more activities to our lives, more and more stuff, hoping that quantity will somehow overcome a lack of quality. Maybe that's why we're so busy all the time. It's because we feel like, oh, I'm not, I'm not fulfilled. I'm not getting enough community. I'm not, getting enough, I'm not connected enough to the things I'm doing. But what if I do more? Would that solve the problem? Even worse, Because we enter into all of these things, all of these connections, all of these relationships as individuals, as individuals eager to enforce our sense of autonomy, each attempt at community is doomed from the start. Our extreme individualism undermines our ability to have true community. And one writer in the Washington Post just this past week, I thought, he wasn't talking about this topic, but what he said, I thought, just a, a sounded so much like this, how, how petty and, and, and fractured we can become in our relationships. He wrote this. He's on a completely other topic, but this is just such a great paragraph. He said, we judge one another as immoral for not using the right light bulbs, for not buying organic, for voting against the anointed candidate, for sending our children to the wrong schools, for eating the wrong food, for buying the wrong shoes, for watching the wrong shows. We break fellowship with each other. We become disconnected, even over those things. Is that surprising? In some sense, when we put it that way, it's surprising. But I don't think that surprises any of us, because we've seen it. Maybe we've participated in it, you see? And we know from our experience that any one of our human relationships can deteriorate very quickly, even over something that small or petty. We know that it's not supposed to be that way. And yet we do it over and over again. It happens over and over again. We witness it over and over again. What can we do about it? How can we break the cycle of this this tension between humility and selfishness? Between conceit and living for others. The Apostle Paul instructed the city of Philippi. Which sounds an awful lot like 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 our cities. 
He said it in this way here in, in Philippians chapter 2 in verses 2 through 4. He said, be of the same mind. Have the same love. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And that's the answer. That's the answer the Apostle Paul gives. That's how we need to live. And we could just sort of end right there and say, yay, go do it. But then you, that would not answer the question that I know is in your mind. You say, how? How am I supposed to do that? How exactly am I supposed to live that way, Mr. Apostle Paul? And he answers in verse 5. And verse 5 is the most important verse in this entire section. It's the pivot point. He says, have this mind... Uh, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have the mind of Christ Jesus. And that raises two questions. The first is, what is the mind of Christ Jesus? And then secondly, how can I have it? You see, I want to live in community with other people. I want to, to have that. I don't want to break my relationships over petty things anymore. Apostle Paul, help me. You see? And he says, okay, this is how you do it. We're going to look now at what is the mind of Christ Jesus? And then how do we get it? So what is the mind of Christ Jesus? The answer to that question is one of the most surprising, subversive, counterintuitive, countercultural things that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. It's one, of the most, it's one of the most surprising things in the entire Bible. That's not an exaggeration. You see, Philippi... As, as Brad mentioned in previous sermons, if you were here, Philippi was a colony of former Roman soldiers. For them, life was about honor. Honor is what motivated them to go do great and daring things for the emperor, for their city, for their family. Why should you sacrifice yourself for your family? For honor, they would say. For the possibility of gaining honor. Risk it all. To, to achieve the highest honor. That was their way. Their heroes were the great generals that they had served under, these former Roman soldiers. Or maybe even the emperor himself. Or maybe even that greatest hero of the ancient world, Alexander the Great. See, Alexander the Great died at the ripe old age of 33. But in that short life, which is short, I'm already older than that, it, it, what have I accomplished? We could list some things, right? But what did Alexander the Great accomplish before he died at age 33? In that short life, he conquered an empire that stretched from France to India. Along the way, Alexander declared himself to be a god and was regarded as one for centuries afterward. Every Roman ruler patterned himself after Alexander. Julius, Julius Caesar explicitly said, I'm going to be like Alexander. And his empire stretched from North Africa in the south all the way up into England in the north. Augustus Caesar and the emperors that followed extended the empire still further. And every Roman soldier saw himself as a part of that mighty machine, including the former soldiers that lived in Philippi. To them, honor was everything. And humility... Humility was shameful. Humility was the end. If you lost your honor, you had nothing left to live for. I mean, they would commit suicide over this. Honor was everything, and humiliation was the worst thing that could ever happen to you. And it was to those people that the Apostle Paul wrote verses 6 through 11. Listen to this. Jesus Christ, who 
though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Those are beautiful words. Some of the most beautiful words in all the Bible. And the verses are actually in a very unusual format. They're written in verse form. They're poetry. They're meant to be poetry. Some of the English Bible translations, like the one, I, like I'm, the one I'm holding and using up here, puts it in paragraph form. But it's actually definitely in poetic form. It's definitely meant to be poetry. So in the bulletin, I did this terrible poor man's verse version of... Uh, I mean, I thought about, should I really try to like, make it a poetic verse style? And I was like, no, I'm not competent enough for that. So I'll just do it like that. So that you can see, this is supposed to be a poem, you see. Why did the Apostle Paul write, write this section in poetry? Why, did, why would he... All of us, he's talking about uh, li- living a certain way. Don't be like this. Be like this. And all of a sudden, he busts out this poem. Why would he do that? Well, one writer said it this way. There are some things that can, perhaps, only be said in poetry. And perhaps this is one of them. I thought that was great. There has been a debate for many years, many, many years about whether the Apostle Paul here is writing this poem for the first time, or perhaps maybe he's even quoting a song that his readers already knew. Maybe, many people have said, this is like one of the earliest Christian hymns. And maybe the church was singing it, and the Apostle Paul knew that they knew this song, and so he quotes it for them here to illustrate. Hey, you guys know this song. Think about the words, and think about how they apply here. There have been several articles published even just in the last couple months by New Testament scholars debating whether or not this is an early Christian hymn. Uh, Probably the majority opinion is that it is one of the earliest Christian hymns. Uh, There's a significant minority that says, no, it's not. To me, I just think it doesn't matter a ton. Either way, what we have here is one of the earliest statements of the Christian faith. We have an early, early, early confession of faith going here. A confession of who Jesus is and what he accomplished. And this passage has been used by Christians as a confession, as a praise for centuries. Centuries and centuries. Let's look at the shape of it. Look at the shape. I think about texts oftentimes in terms of the shape of them. You see? Uh, Look at verses uh, 6 through 8. That's the first part. You see what 6 through 8 does? It goes down, down, down. Over and over, it lists humiliation, stacked on humiliation. It's almost excessive. Who, though he was in the form of God, that's where he starts, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. One step down. He emptied himself, another step down. Taking the form of a servant, down. Being born in the likeness of men, down. Being found in human form, he humbled himself, down. By becoming obedient, down. Even to the point of death, down. Even We're talking death on a cross. Down even further. So the Apostle Paul sort of stacks it time and time again. It's almost like he wants to overwhelm you with the degree of humiliation that Jesus underwent. He, wants you, he doesn't want you just to notice, oh, by the way, Jesus was humble. 
You know, I mean, he wants to stack it up so high that it becomes this wall you can't get past. Whoa. Jesus wasn't just humble. Jesus was really humble. You see? And look, he does the same thing in the second part. Look at verses 9 through 11. From the bottom, death on a cross, it goes up, 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 more and more. It's exaltation stacked on exaltation. There's almost too much of it. Listen. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. He could have just stopped there. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Not just a name. That's one step. The name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow. Well, that's awesome. In heaven. Even better. On the earth. Under the earth. What knees are under the earth? There are some. You know, they're not alive anymore. I mean, think about that. The knees that are under the earth are going to bow. Isn't that amazing? And every tongue will confess, even the ones that are under the earth, yeah, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He stacks it up, 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 up. He's, it's likewise, he's, me- he's meaning to overwhelm the reader with just how exalted Jesus is. Jesus isn't just exalted. I mean, we're talking exalted, 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 exalted. That's what he's saying. So how shocking this must have sounded to the the Christians at Philippi. How backward. You see, Paul is claiming the real pattern, the true way to live is like Jesus. Humiliation followed by exaltation. The gods and the emperors and the generals of Rome had it all wrong, Paul is saying. Their example was never humiliation. Only exaltation all the time. Jesus taught the opposite. First humiliation, then exaltation. And it has to go that way. Paul is saying that the mind of Christ Jesus, his way of evaluating humiliation and exaltation, Jesus' mind is the true mind. And his people are supposed to imitate him and follow him and not their old heroes. They're supposed to forsake their old heroes and and follow him. One writer put it this way. Most people in Paul's world besotted with, the, with an idea of the gods into which people like Alexander and Augustus could be fitted without much difficulty were shocked beyond belief at the idea that the one true God might be known at last in the person of a crucified Jew. But see, the thing is, I don't think it's any less surprising or countercultural today than it was in the first century. I think if you ask most people today, they will struggle with the idea that a crucified Jew was the God who made all things. If you just go out and ask people, hey, did you know there was a crucified Jew and he's the God that made all things? They would say, what? As my kids say to me all the time, what? I think most people would struggle with that. I think most people today will find it very difficult to believe that humiliation leads to exaltation. You see, that's counterintuitive. We don't believe that. We believe exaltation always. Humiliation never. I mean, we're just like the Romans. I mean, if I said, hey, I've got two lists. I want to sign you up onto one of them. I've got the exaltation list and I've got the humiliation list. And I just kind of did that in downtown Boise. I had a clipboard. Which one would you like to sign up for? (laughs) There'd be... I mean, if somebody actually signed up for the humiliation list, 
I would be a little worried. You know, either, either, they're, either, they, either they've read this passage or there's something wrong, you know. If, let me, let's put it this way. If this passage, if the mind of Christ, if the pattern of humiliation, then exaltation doesn't force you to reconsider who Jesus is, then I don't know what will. I don't know what will. I do know this much. Listen, Jesus isn't going to fit very well into your pantheon. Just like he didn't for the Romans. Jesus is not going to fit very well into your pantheon. Jesus will quickly shatter any concept that we have of what a God should be like. And any time we meet Jesus, we are going to have to reconsider some things. That's the reality of meeting Jesus. Anytime you encounter Jesus, you're going to have some stuff you've got to think through. That's the reality. Here's another good quote. Isn't it time that we started from Jesus himself and rethought our whole picture of God around him? If and when we do that, we shall find, of course, that the picture is very challenging. This is a God who is known most clearly when he abandons his rights for the sake of the world. Yes, says Paul, that's the mind of Christ, the pattern of thinking that belongs to you because you belong to the Messiah. That's the mind of Christ. Down, down, down. Then up, up, up. Humiliation, then exaltation. That's the mind of Christ. But now we're to our last question. How do I get it? Okay? How can I have the mind of Christ? I mean, Paul, in this passage, he says, have the mind of Christ. Okay, Mr. Apostle Paul, how do I do it? You see? There's a couple of things we can say. First, here's a real funny thing in this passage. Uh, a curveball, if there ever was one. Something unexpected in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, you already have it. The mind you're meant to have, verse 5 says, it is already yours in Christ Jesus. That's what it says. That's a bit surprising, isn't it? Why is it so surprising? Because it doesn't feel that way. I don't feel like I have the mind of Christ. If I already have the mind of Christ, then why am I still so conceited? Right? If I already have the mind of Christ, why do I so often act in my, only in my own self-interest and not in the interests of others? Why do I still do that if I have the mind of Christ? Well, here's how the apostle explained it all throughout the book of Philippians, actually in several places. He says, while we already have the mind of Christ Jesus, at this time, until, until God finishes with us, we're still of a divided mind. You see? Sometimes we think like Jesus, and sometimes we don't. And there's, there's two things to take away from that. Number one is don't worry. Fear not. Because he says in chapter 1, God is at work in you. Chapter 1 says, He who began the good work in you will complete it. Guarantee. So if you're in Christ and you have the mind of Christ, you say, but I'm still of a divided mind. Fear not. He who began the good work in you will complete it. And here's the second part, though. There's always the second part. Here it goes. He also has called you to work it out, too. To work on it. To develop the mind of Christ. 
to strive for it. Look at verse, uh, you don't have it in your bulletins, but if you have your Bible open, you'll see in verses uh, 11 and 12 here in chapter, sorry, 12 and 13 here in chapter 2. The very next verses, it says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Fear not. God is at work within you, and he who began the work will finish it. And now, go out and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But that's next week's passage. So we'll save that for next week. Let me finish with this one last thought. One last thought. Maybe all this sounds a little weird to you. The whole business. You say, well, this is weird stuff, Douglas. It's not the first time I've heard that. See, the thing is, we're not used to leaders like this. We're used to leaders who assert themselves, who seek the glory and expect others to do the same. We're used to the Caesars of the world. And we, that's who we model ourselves after. I mean, just fill in the blank. Ask, I mean, in your own head, fill in the blank. In order to get ahead, I must fill in the blank. The answer is assert, Caesar yourself, right? You see, naturally speaking, this whole humiliation, then exaltation business doesn't sound right to us. It doesn't feel right, naturally speaking. We want to go straight to the exaltation part. Hey, God, can I skip the humiliation part? Is that really necessary? I just want to kind of beeline, you know, kind of fast forward through the bad. It's the part I don't like. So the question you have to answer after reading Philippians 2, you have to answer this question after reading Philippians 2. Are you willing? Are you willing to follow a leader like Jesus? I'm sure you already realize that if you do, if you entrust your life to a humiliated, crucified Jew, I'm sure you already realize that people will mock you for it. They'll say, what? How backward. How ridiculous. You follow him? I mean, of all the people, you know there are better leaders out. I mean, you could at least admire Alexander the Great, for crying out loud. That's what I hear all the time out in the city of Boise. See, the thing is, are you, are you willing? Are you willing to follow a leader like Jesus? The thing is, we're also, we're not, not just are we not used to leaders like this, we're also not used to a life like this. A life of humiliation, then exaltation. We're not used to that idea. Are you willing to follow Jesus through the same trajectory that he went through? Humiliation, then exaltation. It's difficult. I mean, it's a hard question to answer. It's not one you can just sort of cavalierly say, oh yeah, awesome, I can do that. Because you can't. You need him. I mean, if you become a Christian, you're volunteering to suffer now based on the assurance of things you can only hope for and a conviction about things not yet seen. That's what we're, that's, can you do that? Will you do that? Are you willing? But here's the deal, it will be worth it. The pattern of Jesus is that we have to go through more humiliation than we could ever wish for. But afterward comes an exaltation that we can not now imagine. Do you believe that Jesus can keep that promise? Do you think he can make good on it? If you go through the humiliation, will the exaltation be waiting on the other side? How can I know that? Well, let the cross be your answer. Let the cross be your answer. If Jesus can redeem the cross, 
then he, if he can turn the cross into exaltation, then he can do anything. Amen.